Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Welcome to Freedom Through Faith. Prepare to be blessed as pastor and teacher Robert Thibodeau leads us into the anointed study of the Word of God, teaching and empowering you how to impact your world with the gospel of Jesus Christ, teaching you how to receive the blessings and provisions of God and how to walk through this life with Freedom Through Faith. And now, here's Pastor Robert Thibodeau. Glory to God. Hallelujah. Hello, everyone, everywhere. This is Pastor Robert Thibodeau. Welcome to Freedom Through Faith. Bless God, we're so glad you could join us today. Every day that we can gather around the Word of God is a good day. Amen. Because it's the good book, and it's the good message. It's the good news. Hallelujah. And the Word of God is all we need in this earth. It's the answer to every problem. It's the answer to economic problems. It's the answer to political problems. It's an answer to social problems. If you have a problem, the Bible has the answer, and his name is Jesus. Amen. Let's go to the Lord with a word of prayer, and then we'll get started in today's study. Father, in the name of Jesus, we come before your throne of grace and mercy this day. Seeking mercy, finding grace that helps in our time of need. Father, this broadcast, through the miracle of the internet, goes forth into all the earth, into places it's not safe for laborers to go. But your word still goes there. Your word goes forth and does not return to you void. Your word accomplishes what you please. Your word prospers where you send it. And Jesus, we thank you that you are the word that was made flesh. Now, Lord, we ask for your Holy Spirit to lead and guide us in this Bible study this day that all things may be for your honor and the Father's honor, glory, and praise. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hallelujah. Glory to God. Have your Bibles. Go to John chapter 8. And as you're turning there, Join me in our confession of faith that we may establish the foundation upon which we're going to build today. Amen. Glory to God. Repeat these words after me. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. 
And the third day he rose again from the dead and ascended into heaven and sits now at the right hand of God the Father Almighty from where he's coming soon to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe the church is the body of Christ. I believe in the communion of saints. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. I believe in the resurrection of the body. And I believe in life everlasting. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Hallelujah. Have you found John chapter 8 yet? Last week, we began a study, and, and we'll conclude it today, on attaining righteousness. And as we continue to watch unfolding news events, all tragic, happening in the news, I've been reminded again of the terrible reality that ours is a world dying in sin. And as I was thinking about my prayer time and preparation for today's broadcast, I was drawn to John chapter 8. And open your Bibles and look for me a moment, uh, just at one of the most tragic portions of Scripture concerning the ultimate end of man without Jesus as their Savior. In John chapter 8, Jesus says these tragic words in verse 21. John 8, beginning in verse 21. Then Jesus said again unto him, I go my way, and you shall seek me, and you shall die in your sins. For where I go, you cannot come. Then in verse 24, he says, I said therefore unto you that you shall die in your sins. For you do not believe that I am. And you notice that little, it says I am he in the King James Version, but notice the he is in italics. That means it was placed there at the discretion of the Bible translators. And the reason is, yes, they believe Jesus was God, but you know, if they start claiming that I am, that's the name of God. So they say, well, you know, let's lighten the impact a little bit and we'll put the he in there because that's who it's referring to. Unfortunately, it took away from the powerful statement Jesus was saying. So if we take out the he, here's what it says. I said therefore unto you that you shall die in your sins, plural. For if you do not believe that I am, you shall die in your sins. Three times. In those two verses, Jesus makes the same condemnation. You shall die in your sin, and you shall die in your sins. Once it's in the singular, twice it's in the plural. Now, you've all heard the expression, he has nobody to blame but himself. And you've probably used it. I know I have. And while that saying is true in many ways in the natural world, it is also true in the spiritual dimension as well. You see, when anyone dies in their sins, they have nobody to blame but themselves. If a person dies in sin, 
they perish to an eternity of punishment. And there's nobody to blame except themselves. Back in the first chapter of John, you're introduced to this truth by the Holy Spirit recording these words about Jesus. It says, There was the true light which coming into the world gives light to every man. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. You know, it fascinates me that the Holy Spirit has said that the true light, talking about Jesus, coming into the world gives light to every man. There's a sense in which every man who has ever lived from Adam to now on the face of the earth is responsible for some degree of the light. In Romans chapter 1, you are told that the Creation reveals certain things about God. That our conscience, our conscience being, reveals certain things about God that we can perceive. In Romans chapter 2, Paul says, conscience actually excuses or accuses even the pagans. What does that mean? You know, you've, you've heard people ask the question, well, what about those that never heard about Jesus? Well, this, these scriptures are talking about the very fact, and it's also written in Romans, that all of creation groans awaiting the, the revelation of the sons of man. In other words, all of creation groans waiting for man to take their rightful place of dominion in this earth. Scripture also says that, that even those who've never heard about Jesus can sense God in nature and his awesome, awesome presence in everything that has been created. And I could go off into different venues of that, but that's not the point of today's study. What I want to get to, though, is that all of these scriptures reminds us that man has been given sufficient light. Remember, light drives away the darkness. We are to be a light shining into the world of darkness. Scriptures give us sufficient light, which if we lived up to, will lead to a further light. And ultimately, the light of the knowledge of Christ. Now, think about you're out in the desert. I've been there when I was in the military, out in El Paso, going out to White Sands Missile Range, White Sands Proving Grounds. Out in the middle of the desert, it is dark. I mean, you can, other than any light from stars and things like that, you would not be able to see your hand in front of your face. But yet you can see lights shining way off. It doesn't give you very much light, but it gives you a light to start walking to. And on these road marches, we can see the barracks. It looked like it was like right there. In, the, in reality, it was like 10 miles away. But as we continued moving towards that light, eventually, a couple hours later, we would arrive at the light. And as we got closer to the light, we could begin to see things around us. 
until we got right up to the light, at which time we were immersed in the light. And scripture is the same way. You will receive a light shining in the darkness. And when you're in the darkness and your focus is upon that single light and you begin moving to that light, eventually you get to the point where the light of the scriptures become open to you and you realize who the scriptures are talking about. The problem is man does not live up to that light. Man willfully, willfully, willingly refuses the light. As John chapter 3 or John 3 tells us, man loves darkness rather than light because his deeds are evil. As wonderful as it is for us to experience the love of Christ and the peace of Christ, the joy of salvation, to know the hope of eternal life, it is equally tragic that there are many, many who flatly and even blatantly, overtly reject the light. They refuse the light. They choose the darkness. Why? Because they love their sin. Think about that. Why would someone who is Can I say this, Lord? An addict, drug addict, an alcoholic, an adulterer, a club goer. You know, so many people, when you drive by clubs, nightclubs on Saturday night, they're packed full. But yet Sunday morning, the church parking lot right across the street, is virtually empty. Why do people love their sin more than the Word of God? You know, the amazing part of the passage which we just read is that Jesus was not speaking to out-and-out wicked people. He wasn't speaking to, you know, a room full of, of adulterers, murderers, drug addicts, or anything like that. No, he was not speaking to the immoral riffraff of the society of his day. He was speaking in these scriptures to the religious leaders. He was speaking to the experts who should know all about the Old Testament revelation. He was telling the most religious people of his day that they were all going to die in their sins and never be able to come where he was going. How did that happen? How is it that people die in their sins, unforgiven, knowing Jesus is Lord and Savior? How does that happen? They die unjustified, unconverted, unregenerated, unredeemed, and bound for an everlasting hell. People that know who Jesus is, but still go to hell. Even Bible scholars. Oh yeah, I'm stepping on toes here. How does that happen? So I said, last week we began looking at attaining righteousness. And I struggled last week whether or not 
I should start with the teaching we're going over today. Whether to give this one first and then last week's second. But I decided this one should be given after last week's presentation. After I established the good news of last week's sermon that we can, through Christ, we can attain righteousness. We can do it through him. Well, why, Brother Bob, was that important to do that one first? Well, because what I'm going to share with you today, well, some people are going to be offended by what I'm saying. When I launch into today's teaching, some will be offended. So I'm praying that the foundation taught last week, and if you missed it, please go to our archives and download it and listen to it because if you're just tuning in today for the first time, you're going to be offended. I guarantee it. But if you go back and listen to last week, you will then understand, you will then understand, you will know that Jesus will forgive you if you accept him and his sacrifice in your behalf. What he did in dying for your sins. And that today's teaching, I pray, will just open your eyes to your actual spiritual condition. That's my prayer. Because I know some people listening to me right now will be able to identify themselves in what I'm about to say. So the question was asked, how is it possible that people can die in their sins even when they know Scripture, even when they know the Bible? How is that possible? It's because there are four attitudes that will guarantee, guarantee, as they say back home in Louisiana, that you will die in your sin. Four things that will guarantee it. If you want to die in your sin, well, write down these four things because it will become reality soon enough. Number one, and we covered it last week as well, is self-righteousness. To be self-righteous. The first step for you to die in your sin is to be completely content with the condition you're in. To feel that you have no need of anything, no need of a Savior. You don't have a severe sin problem. It's not that bad. You're a good person, more or less. You may even think that you're better than average. And certainly when God keeps his scores on the little sheet that he has upstairs, you're going to have more good points than bad ones. Imagine yourself having attained some kind of righteousness through religious activity, going to, you know, oh God, I went to church twice a week. I served on the church deacon board. I ran fundraisers for the church. Surely that counts for something. So you think you attained some kind of righteousness through religious activity and participating in ceremonies and you believe that you have no serious sin problem. I mean, you know, sometimes I mistakenly click on a link on the internet and something opens up that I shouldn't really look at. But I did anyway. 
you know, I, I, I may have a, a drink every now and then, but it's nothing serious. I may not go to church every Sunday. Actually, I might only go once a month. Well, maybe sometimes. Well, I, I you know, I do go to church every Christmas Eve and, and also on Easter Sunday. You see, you believe that you have no serious sin problem. Therefore, you feel you have no real need to bow to your knees in humble, broken repentance before God and just plead for His mercy. If that's you, I guarantee you will die in your sin. Even though you know who Jesus is, you will die in your sin. Jesus, in verse 21, said, I'm going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin because where I'm going, you cannot come. He said, we're going to be separated. We're going to different places. You're never going to be where I am because you're going to die in your sin. You're going to die unforgiven, unconverted, unjustified, unprepared to meet God Almighty because when you meet him, if there's any sin in your life, it cannot be in the presence of God. What he's saying is very simple. Coming towards the end of his ministry, the end of his earthly life, he's saying, I'm going back to my Father in heaven. I'm going back to the glory that's in the presence of God. You? You'll vaguely look for a Messiah. You will hopelessly pursue a Messiah, but you've already rejected and misunderstood the true Messiah. So you will seek and seek and never find, and then someday you will die. But where I'm going, you will never come. You see, there's no way to God but through me, Jesus said. You reject me, you will never be in the presence of God. You reject me, you will never have access to God. The eternal home of the Father, which is open to me, will be closed to you. Those are powerful words. And he was speaking to the religious leaders of his day, just as I'm speaking to them today in the name of Jesus. In John 7, 36, he said, You will seek me, you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. Jesus is announcing, basically, the doom of an unforgiven sinner. But as I said, what was so interesting about this, these were the religious elites of his day. These were the people who fancied themselves to be in the know. Who thought they really knew God? You want to see how self-righteous they were? Look at their response to what Jesus said. In verse 22. Then said the Jews, Will he kill himself? Because he said, Where I'm going, you cannot come. Well, that term, therefore, the Jews, is used by John, usually in the sense 
of speaking about the leaders, the Pharisees, the scribes, and it does in this case as well. The Jewish leaders were saying, listen to this. Let's just listen now. They were basically saying, surely he's not going to kill himself, is he? Since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come. That's a strange response, isn't it? What a... It's not difficult to understand when you realize the context of which they're saying, the context of which their beliefs were held. They said, first of all, they knew he was talking about dying. They knew he was talking about death. When he said, I'm going away and you'll seek me, you shall die in your sins, and where I'm going, you cannot come. They knew he was talking about death. That much was clear. But then they mocked what he said by bringing up the issue of suicide. Why would they say, is he going to kill himself? Why would they say that? Because Orthodox Judaism viewed suicide basically as utterly unthinkable. In fact, the Jews believed for centuries that anyone who committed suicide was literally and eternally relegated to the darkest part of the eternal pit of punishment. That someone who committed suicide would go to the darkest part of eternity. Josephus said, Josephus basically said the same thing, saying that the Jews believed that a person who committed suicide would be separated forever from the place of comfort and peace known as Abraham's bosom. So what these self-righteous Jews are saying is this. They're saying, oh, so if you're going to a place where we cannot come, then you must be going to the darkest place of the pit because we're on our way to heaven. We know that. You see, they reversed the entire statement Jesus was trying to get across to them. That's how confident they were in their own self-righteousness. That the sinless, perfect, spotless Son of the living God, whose words they had just heard, whose works they had seen, whose character had impressed them, even Nicodemus, who sought Jesus out, by night, so as not to be seen publicly. Even he stated, we know you're from God. Because God has to be with you to do the works you're doing. But here, he's being jeered and mocked and blasphemed and treated sarcastically, and they're assigning him to the darkest pit when compared with what they deserved. That's unbelievable and blasphemous form of self-righteousness. Maybe he's going to kill himself, they said. So he will go to that black pit where we will never go because we're going to heaven because we're righteous. That's the amazing and tragic reality of religious self-righteousness. And you see it today. You see the same thing today. Denomination versus denomination. Well, them Baptists, you know how they are. Well, them Presbyterians. Oh, what about them Catholics? 
Everyone thinks their religion is perfect. There's only one religion, and it's Christ. He's not a religion. He's a person. Amen. It's amazing and tragic reality of self-righteousness. It lives under such boastful pride that we can't even imagine it. The, the assumptions and blasphemies even about the Son of God. And so they stand there already blinded to his works, deaf to his words. Now stupidly, they are ignoring the warning that they are about to die in their sin with all the horror that involves in an eternal hell. And they turn it into a mocking joke about Jesus going to go somewhere and commit suicide. And again they turn their venomous words on the Son of God. He was going to a place where they couldn't come. But that place was heaven. That place was the Father's presence. That place... I don't know if I just said they or he... He, Jesus, is going to a place they could never come. That place is heaven. The Father's presence. The place with eternal glory. And they, the religious leaders of that day, were going to another place. A place of condemnation. Out of the presence of God, known as hell. But they were so self-righteous, they didn't think their sin was a problem. They didn't think they needed a Savior. They, they thought and they believed they were all right. I mean, they were religious. They did all the ceremonies. They showed up when they were supposed to. They were moral to some degree. And that was enough. We're good. We're in. If you want to guarantee that you're going to die in your sin, have that same attitude that you're good enough. And I promise you, you will, you will die in your sin. Just believe you don't have a sin problem. Believe you don't need a Savior or a Redeemer. And you will die in your sin. They laughed at Jesus in his day. And they laughed and they laughed until they died. And then they cried out in hell, the hell they never thought they would go to. You see, the Jews had developed a system of salvation by human achievement and works. These were the epitome of the achievers. These were the achievers above all achievers. Just like Luke 16 verse 15 says, that which is highly esteemed in the sight of men is what? An abomination to God. They being ignorant of God's righteousness, Romans chapter 10 says, what about to establish their own righteousness? We covered this last week. And they did not realize that by the deeds of the law, no flesh shall be justified in his sight. Proverbs says, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes. They were wrong. The religious leaders of his day were wrong. So it's very simple. If you want to die, if you want, if you want to die in your sin, just be self-righteous. 
Think that you're okay. You're good enough. Count on the religion of human achievement. Count on crediting your good works and your good deeds. When you do that, you will fail every time. If you prefer to remain forever damned, then just be self-righteous. And imagine you don't have a sin problem. You don't need a Savior. Look at verse 23. Jesus answered them, saying to them, You are from below. I'm from above. What he's saying here is, wait a minute. I think you got this mixed up. I think you got the directions mixed up here, fellas. I am a citizen who belongs to the above kingdom. You are a citizen who belongs to the below kingdom. I think you got your thinking reversed. <laughs> what a blow. They're saying, well, maybe he's going to the pit because we're going to heaven. And he says, no, you got it reversed. I'm going above, you're going below. The implication here is that you don't have to wait to be a citizen of that kingdom. You're already a citizen. In verse 44, he says, you are of your father, the devil. You are the children of the devil. You're already a part of his kingdom, the kingdom of darkness, which in its final form is eternal hell. You already have your belonging place there. Your unbelief, your hypocrisy, your false religion, your willful ignorance, your unwillingness to come to the knowledge of Christ. That all comes right out of the pit you represent. You represent, you are under the rule. Ephesians 2 says, you are under the rule of the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in children of disobedience. The whole world, John says in 1 John 5, 19, lies in the lap of the wicked one. So if you want to die in your sin, just keep believing that you're fit for heaven now on your own. You don't need a Savior, and you will die in your sin. Second point about how to die in your sin, just be worldly. Verse 23 again says, You are of this world. I'm not of this world. Here's another guarantee that a person will die in his sins. Simply be part of the word cosmos in this verse. Cosmos here refers to the invisible spiritual system of evil that fights the kingdom of God. The invisible spiritual system of evil. It is the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches referred to in Matthew 13, 22, which chokes out the seed. You know, Jesus taught in John 17 when he was praying, just before he was going to the cross, he was praying for his disciples. In verse 16, well, let's go to verse... Uh, 14. I've given them your word. The world has hated them because they are not of this world, even as I am not of the world. I don't ask that you would take them out of this world, but that you would keep them from the evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them. Separate them through your truth, for your word is truth. 
As you sent me into this world, even so I have also sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself. I set apart myself that they also might be sanctified through the truth. Talking about the word. Verse 20. Neither do I pray for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. So every person from myself all the way back to this point in time has come to know Jesus through the teachings of one or more of these people he's praying for right there. So you could say here in John 17, 20, Jesus is praying for us, you and me, that we would come to know him, that we are not of this world. If you are born again, you are not of this world, even as he's not of this world. And here he's telling these religious leaders, you are, you are of this world. I'm not of this world. So here, as I said, he's talking that word world is actually translated in Greek as cosmos and refers to the invisible spiritual system of evil that's continually fighting the kingdom of God. It's the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches, Matthew says. We use the term in that, that way as well. We, we talk about the system with the term world. For example, we talk about the world of politics or the world of education or the world of sports or whatever. And what we mean is the system that makes up these particular things. Jesus is saying to these leaders here, you are part of this system. The worldly system. In fact, Luke 16, 8 says, You are children of this system. Children of the world. Children of the cosmos. As you are children of the devil. Because the world system is opposed to the truth. It's opposed to the righteousness. It's opposed to holiness. It's opposed to purity. Look at what's going on in the world right now. If you are opposed to the truth, if you're opposed to righteousness, if you're opposed to holiness, you're opposed to purity, you're standing against homosexuality, you're standing against gay marriage, you're standing against abortions, the murder of children in the womb of the mother, you're standing against all these things, you're, you're standing against taking God out of schools, you're standing against taking down of the Ten Commandments in public parks and things like that, if you're standing against that, you are criticized, ridiculed, sometimes oppressed, labeled, homophobic, fanatic, radical, because you don't have tolerance. Tolerance. You know, that word tolerance... It is purely an American point of view. Tolerance started in America. Think about it. If you go to Saudi Arabia and you preach Christianity and you convert someone from Islam to Christianity, you can be put to death. Same thing in Iraq, Afghanistan, Pakistan. There's no tolerance there. 
You go to China and proclaim publicly in the public square and start converting people and preaching the gospel. You could be arrested, beaten, tortured. There's no tolerance there. It doesn't matter where you go in the world. Even Canada, our neighbor to the north. If you preach against homosexuality, you could be arrested and imprisoned and fined. There's no tolerance there. Yet, when they say tolerance, what they're saying is you have to tolerate our sin. That's the world's definition of tolerance. But yet, in America, when we founded this nation, was founded, tolerance meant each person can believe as they wish. That's what tolerance meant. I can hear the opponents to Christianity right now say, that's right, we can believe what we wish and you can't say nothing about it. No, it doesn't say you can't say nothing about it. just said that you will not be punished or imprisoned for it. So if you want to be a homosexual, go ahead. But just do not force your will on us. Well, we don't tell nobody they got to be a homosexual. We don't, we're not saying that they have to marry, you know, they don't have to marry their neighbor or, you know, gay marriage. We're, you don't have to do that. You just have to recognize it's our right to do so. But yet when you preach against it, you're not beating them up. You're not beating them. You're not imprisoning them. You're just showing them that the true way to heaven is to acknowledge your sin. Why is homosexuality a sin? Because the Bible says that God, it's an abomination in his sight. And then they come off with, oh, you're judging me. No, I'm not judging you. I'm telling you what the judge has already ruled. Because the world system is opposed to the truth. In fact, Jesus gave himself, Galatians 1, 4 says, for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present system of evil. This system is hostile to godliness. It's hostile to virtue. Just look at the system. By materialism, humanism, sex, carnal ambition, pride, greed, self-pleasure, self-desire, it's all here. Its opinions are wrong. Its aims are selfish. Its pleasures are sinful. Its honors are empty. Its smiles are fake. Its love is false. And on and on and on I could go. This world, if you want to be completely truthful, this world is on a road to self-destruction. It is a world that is passing away. Remember the words of the, the Apostle John. Do not love this world or the system nor the things in this system, in this world. If anyone loves the world, loves the system, then the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the system, all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but it's from the system, from the world. For out of the system, out of the world, it is passing away. So three things characterize this point. Lust of the flesh, passion, lust of the eyes, covetousness, pride of life, boastful arrogance. Let me say that again. 
but lust of the flesh, what's your passion? Lust of the eyes, covetousness, I want that. Pride of life, boastful arrogance. That's the system. That's the worldly system. And if you love this system, then the love of the Father is not in you. James gave us the same truth. Amen. Just using different words. He said, you adulteresses, don't you know that friendship with the world or the system is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world, whoever wishes to be a friend of this system in the world, makes himself an enemy of God. Now, we could go on and on about a political party who has done just that, trying to be a friend of the world system. They're proving they are enemies against God. Oh, there you go, Brother Blog. You're starting to talk about the Democrats again. You're, no, they're Republicans too. There's some of them that have sold their soul for power. I'm not speaking Democrat or Republican. I'm, rep I'm talking about political ambitions that seek to verify and give credence to and credibility to the systems of this world. Make them enemies of God. You see, you cannot be in the kingdom of God and in the kingdom of the world at the same time. Wait a minute, Brother Bob. I'm in the world. I have to go to work. I have to work in this system. What is your motive? Yes, you have to work. Yes, you have to have a job. Yes, you have to be part of this world. What did Jesus just say in John 17, 17? They are not of this world. 1720. They are not of this system, even as I am not of this system. They are in this system, but keep them from this system. In other words, you may have to live and operate in this worldly system, but you do not have to allow the system to become part of you. Because you can't have both. These sinful, selfish Earthbound souls who live in the system controlled by the prince of this world, the prince of the system, they are already separated from Jesus Christ. And it's an infinite gulf that's between them. The Christian, those who believe in Jesus and serve Jesus and abhor the things of the flesh, they've been crucified to this system. Because he has died to this system. Oh, it's still there. It's still here. But it's not our life. It's not our domain. We have been translated, the scripture says, from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. Satan is not our prince. Jesus is our king. Amen. Can I get a shout amen somebody? The old patterns are not those that drive us. Now the law of God is that in which we delight. And obedience to the laws of God is our deepest heart's desire. For a man to die in his sins, he only needs to be self-righteous and worldly. Thirdly, here's the crux, be unbelieving. 
unbelieving. In verse 24, Jesus said to the religious leaders, I said therefore to you that you shall die in your sins, for unless you believe I am, you shall die in your sins. If you don't put your faith in who I am, which embodies all of my person and all of the works I've done in your presence, you will die in your sin. Folks, that's the bottom line. Now, the way of escape is open. The way of salvation is open to everyone. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, Paul told the Philippian jailer. If you believe in your heart God has raised him from the dead and you confess with your mouth he is Lord, you will be saved in Romans 10. It's available. Salvation is offered. The way of escape is being offered. But the one who persists in unbelief, who will not believe that Jesus is actually God, who will not believe that he was God come down in the form of human flesh, came as a redeemer to pay the complete price of sin, sacrificing himself for our redemption, and that he rose from the dead for our justification. If you will not believe he is the sovereign Lord and ruler over all things, the one who will not believe that, the one who will not embrace in faith all that he is and all that he has done, he or she will die in their sins. And when he says, if you will not believe I am, he is simply summing up the fullness of all that he is. God's name, remember, is I am that I am. And to believe that Jesus is the great I am is to believe that he is all he claimed to be. I am, he said, the bread of life. I am living water. I am light of the world. I am the good shepherd. I am the vine. I am the resurrection and I am the life. If you believe that he is all that he claimed to be and you place your faith in him, ha, you will escape death and its eternal consequences. But if you don't believe all of that, you will die in your sin. In John chapter 3, remember the last verse, verse 36? He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God will abide on him. So just don't believe. Just refuse to believe, and you will be damned forever. So to die in all of your sins, all you have to do is be self-righteous. Don't think that sin is a problem. It's not a big problem. Just believe that you're good enough. You're already good enough. Just be worldly. Get yourself totally engulfed in this system. Standing up for the rights of the oppressed. Standing up to allow woman to make her own choice. What choice is that? 
choice to work over here instead of over here, or the choice to murder her own baby in her own womb. Stand up for the homosexual rights to marriage. Marriage is a divine institution instituted by God between one man and one woman. It's been like that since the foundation of the world in the Garden of Eden. But now, worldly man says, well, God kind of messed it up. We're going to make it right. If you do that, driven by the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, you are serving your father, Satan. So just refuse to believe that Jesus is all that he said he was and a full expression of faith that embraces him fully as your Redeemer. Just don't do that. You will die in your sin. Fourthly and lastly, just be willfully ignorant. Just be willfully ignorant. It's unimaginable what their response is to this conversation in verse 25. Listen to verse 25. Then they said to him, Who are you? Who are you? That's an unbelievable question. You know, that is unimaginable response when you stop to realize the ministry Jesus has had up to this day and this point in time. Healing people, creating food to feed thousands of mouths, multitudes of people, walking on the water, creating wine out of water at a wedding, demonstrating incredible power. I mean, he could lay hands on a leprous person filled with leprosy, and you could see the skin recovering right there in front of him. He could tell a lame man, get up and walk. He could tell a blind man, go wash and you will see. They had seen this. Many of them firsthand. They had heard his powerful words spoken, words which had never been spoken by any man. Yet they said, who are you? Who are you? Who are you making yourself out to be? You know, I'm reminded of the blind man in chapter 9, John chapter 9. and I wrote an award-winning book. I've actually received a literary award for this book called Blind Faith. And you can go to our website and check it out. It's on Amazon also. You can look it up, Blind Faith by Robert Thibodeau. But in John chapter 9, these religious leaders, after this blind man who had been born blind, washed in the pool of Shalom, or Siloam, came up out of that water seen. Immediately, I mean, it created such a ruckus, they grabbed him and took him to the religious leaders to verify that a miracle had been done. And they came to this blind man and said, Who is he that did this? Where is he from? And a blind man said, you mean you don't know where he's from, yet he made me see? <laughs> Those words today would be something along the lines of, come on, give me a break. 
You ought to know where he's from. I was blind, but he made me see. Take a wild guess where you think he's from. And that's why they got so mad at, and they kicked this blind guy out of the synagogue. They excommunicated him because he said Jesus is God. Here they're asking the same sneering question in a different form. Who are you? You, literally, you, who are you? That's what they're asking Jesus. Who do you think you are telling us these things? Who do you think you are saying these things to us? What in the world gives you a right to assume you're going to heaven and we're going to hell? That we're going to die in our sins and you're going to go to somewhere in the presence of God where we can't come? Just who do you think you are, Jesus? Who are you? That's willful ignorance. It should have been blatantly obvious who he was. How else could it be explained that he was God if not, by, if not by what he did or what he said or what he was and what they had seen? They had seen the miracles. That's why in Mark 16, verses 15 through 21, Jesus basically said, these are the signs of them who will believe. And he goes down this long list. They'll cast out devils in my name. They'll lay hands on the sick. The sick will recover. And then in verse 21 it says, and they, the disciples went forth, preaching and teaching everywhere they went, with the word being confirmed by miracles and signs. You see, when you preach... And you say, Jesus will heal you. Jesus will confirm the word spoken in, by faith. Amen. That's why in verse 25, Jesus responds with saying, What have I been saying to you from the beginning? I've been telling you who I am and where I came from. I've been telling you over and over who I am. It's not a secret. Early on, he said, The temple was my father's house. And he taught that the temple of the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. He said, you destroy me in three days, I will rise again. He said to Nicodemus, he was the son of God. He said to the woman at the well, he was the promised one, the Savior. He told that blind man, I want you to understand this. Get the book. It's a great book, if I do say so myself. This blind man was one of just a handful of people to whom Jesus revealed his true self to before the crucifixion. The blind man, he didn't see Jesus. He'd only heard his words go wash in the pool of Siloam. And when he testified for Jesus in front of the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees, they kicked him out of the synagogue. Now he doesn't know where to go. Jesus found him and asked him, Do you believe on the Son of God? The blind man said, he recognized Jesus' voice. He said, Who is he, Lord, that I might believe? And Jesus said, I am he that speaks with you. He's one of the few people Jesus actually revealed 
his true identity too. But Jesus here in verse 25 is saying, I told you who I am over and over and over again. It's not a secret. If you kill me, I will rise again in three days. He's using Noah, not Noah, uh, Jonah as an example. The message was clear. He had said in that tremendous section of John 5 that all judgment had been given to him from the Father. That he would literally raise from the dead. Just and unjust. All of them. Whoever dies will be raised from the dead. Some to the resurrection of life. Some to the resurrection of damnation. It was obvious who he was. He said over and over, I am the light of the world. Follow me and you'll never walk in darkness. He said, I am the water of life. Drink of me, you'll never thirst. I am the bread of life. You eat me, you'll never get hungry. You better eat my flesh and drink my blood or you'll never know who God is and be saved. He said all that. He had verified it with a powerful display of miracles. Then, stupidly, these leaders stand there and say, Who are you? Who do you think you are? And Jesus says, What I've been saying to you from the beginning. Then he says in verse 26, I have many things to speak and to judge concerning you. But he who sent me is true. And the things which I heard from him, these I speak to the world. He says, I have more to say to you. And what I have to say to you comes from God and God is true. And God wants me to speak these things to you. I have more to say. These are the words of judgment. They're not his words alone. They're the words of God who is the judge. Because back in verse 16, he told them, my judgment's true, and I'm not alone in it. What he's saying to them is, hey, I got a lot to tell you, but by now you ought to know who I am. But since you've come to the point where you say you don't know who I am, well, I have something more to say to you. But it's no longer good things. What I have to say to you now is about judgment. So you move rapidly from Chapter 8, verse 12, where he says, I'm the light of the world. He that follows me shall not walk in darkness. There's an invitation. See, he who follows me shall not walk in darkness. But now comes the condemnation. I have more to say to you, but it's about judgment. And I get it from God. To show you how ignorant they were, in verse 27, they didn't realize he'd been speaking to them about the Heavenly Father. They didn't know who he was. They didn't even know who his father was. They didn't even know he was talking about God. That's how ignorant these people were. Ignorant because of willful rejection. In verse 28, he said about their ignorance, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you'll know. What does he have in mind there? His crucifixion. He said, when I'm crucified, when I'm lifted up, then... You will know that I am. And I can do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak the things the Father taught me. You'll know then that I am the promised one. You'll know then that I came from God, and you will know then that God sent me and spoke through me. You'll know it then when I'm lifted up. How would they know it? Well, if they had their eyes open, just standing there at the base of the cross, watching what he was doing, watching what he was going through as the entire sin of the world is being absorbed by his body, 
And the scripture says he was transfigured. We, we didn't even recognize him as a human being anymore. That would have been revealed enough. After all, even the pagan centurion standing there watching it, he was not a believer. But even he, the centurion watching what was happening, said, truly, truly, this was the Son of God. How could he see it? He saw in just what was happening on the cross. Then add to that the graves that burst open and dead people coming back to life. Add to that the veil of the temple being ripped into... There we are. Sorry about that. Bump my microphone. I get too carried away. I'm telling you, folks, this stuff is so real in me, I get carried away. But the, the veil of the temple ripped in two from the top to the bottom. The access of God's throne was now thrown open to everyone. Then add to that, in 70 AD, just as Jesus prophesied, 1.1 million Jews in Jerusalem were massacred. The stones of the temple were completely torn down, one from another. 72 AD, 20,000 Jews were slain in Galilee. 10,000 Jewish throats were cut in Damascus just in one day. Stop and look. Add to that that a church was born. The apostles went out in miraculous power, preaching and healing, casting out demons, and the church was growing and exploding, and they filled Jerusalem with their doctrine. They turned the world upside down, Scripture says. He says, lift me up, and then you'll know. You'll know that I am he and that I speak for God. The cross will be the point at which all of history will be so dramatically altered, you can't help but know if you're not blind by your own desire. Oh, you'll know. Then Jesus adds again the most essential aspect of his claim. In relation to God in verse, 20, verse 29, he says, He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone. For I am always doing the things that are pleasing to him. He just sort of wants to make sure they realize again that he's not operating independently at all. And he's also claiming that he's equal to God. So how do you die in your sins? Be self-righteous. Be worldly. Be unbelieving and just be willfully ignorant. You know what the sadness of all this is? Even after the cross, they knew. Hey, they knew he rose from the dead. That's why the scripture made a point of saying they paid the soldiers to lie about it. Because they knew it. They knew he was not in the grave anymore. They knew. The church was born. They knew the phenomena of the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. They knew that the apostles had been birthed with what looked like tongues of fire. They knew that these untrained, unskilled men that had been with Jesus, they knew they were speaking in all the foreign dialects of the world that day. They knew that everywhere the disciples went, healings were taking place. 
They knew Peter was healing everybody, even without laying hands up. Just as he walked past them, his shadow falling, and people were being healed. They knew the lame man in the temple was made to walk. They knew that. But sin loves darkness. And sin is willfully ignorant. So as we get ready to close, the question is, do you want to die in your sin? Be self-righteous. Just think, well, you know, I know who Jesus is. I know he died for me. But I'm a good person. I may not, you know, be a totally committed Christian. I may not be that, but, you know, I'm good enough. I mean, I, I, I know if the tally sheet was presented, I'd have more good that outweighs the bad. I'm okay. Or just be worldly. Focus on the things of the world. We need a better house. We need a better car. We need better TVs. We need better phones. We need better this, better that. I don't want to be with you know the people who you know have the old stuff. I want the latest and the greatest and the brightest and the biggest. Just be worldly. Beyond believing. I don't believe any of that stuff. Or just be willfully ignorant. There is another alternative, though. Look at verse 30. Hallelujah. And he spoke these words, and many believed on him. He was speaking to the Jewish leadership. But many listening came to believe in him. Isn't that wonderful? How about you? Those people who believed, they went where Jesus is. They did not die in their sins. Hallelujah. They died with their sins completely paid for. Because only people like that can enter into heaven. Hallelujah. You have to believe that. I'm not saying that you need to live a perfect life. That's impossible. I'm not saying that you can never ever commit another sin. That's impossible. I'm not saying that you have to live 24-7 according to the Ten Commandments. That's impossible. The Ten Commandments were given so man can prove he needs a Savior. Or I should say so God could prove to man that they need a Savior. When were the Ten Commandments given? You know, God had delivered the Jews from bondage in Egypt brought them through the Red Sea, bringing them into the Promised Land, wanting to have his presence with them, came down in a mount, uh, to the mountain in fire and clouds and thundering and lightning. And the people got scared when God was speaking to them. So they told Moses, you go up and talk to God and come back and tell us what he said. And then we'll do whatever he says. So God tested them with the manna. Something real simple. It's amazing how God will test you with simple things. He said, here's enough bread that will keep you nourished. Collect just enough that you need for you and your family and no more. 
Do not store it overnight. On the Sabbath day, the day before the Sabbath, I'll give you twice as much, and that one will not go rotten. But the people didn't believe. They violated his commands right off the bat. But yet they told Moses, all that he tells us to do, we will do. We'll obey. So God told Moses, all right, if they think they can do enough work to get to heaven where I am and be in my presence, this is what they have to do. And then he laid out the Ten Commandments. And it's impossible for man to fulfill them all. Even Jesus told the rich young ruler, you only lack one thing. You have covetousness. Give away all that you have. Sell it all. Give it to the poor. Then come follow me. And we studied a couple weeks ago what that term follow me meant. If you missed it, go back to the archives and listen. You need a savior. Jesus has proven he is the way, the truth, and the life. And that nobody has access to the Father but by him. Join me in this prayer. Father, if you're listening this morning or to a recording of this broadcast, and I'm sure there are, there are people who are going to die in their sins, who are holding on to their own religious achievements, who are holding on to this world and its system, who have refused to abandon themselves in full faith and belief in Jesus Christ, who are willfully ignorant of you, Father, willfully ignorant of Jesus. Lord, may they turn from that even now, reach out and embrace you as their Savior and believe like those of that day. Father, may they in believing be cleansed and worthy to be received up into heaven at their death. And Father, for those who are already Christians, may this be a time of confession for us to get our hearts right with you so there's nothing between us and you. Lord Jesus, I sin. I confess my sin. Grant that I may never cease grieving because of my sin and when I sin. That I will never be content with myself. That I will never think or have reached a point of perfection. For Lord Jesus, kill my envy. Command my way upward. My unruly tongue. Trample down myself in pride. And Lord, give me grace, grace to be holy, kind, gentle, pure, and peaceable. To live for you, not for self. To copy your words, your acts, your attitude. Grant to me grace to be transformed into your likeness and consecrated wholly to you. To live entirely to your glory. Deliver me from any attachment to things unclean. And I ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you prayed that prayer, do me a favor. Email me at brotherbob at ftfm.org because we want to rejoice with you. Amen. Till next time, this is Pastor Robert to be reminding you, be blessed in all that you do. You have just heard a message of encouragement from anointed pastor and teacher Robert Thibodeau with Freedom Through Faith Ministries in Baltimore, Maryland. For more information on the Freedom Through Faith Ministries or to invite Pastor Thibodeau to your church, please visit our website, www.ftfm.org. That's FTFM for Freedom Through Faith Ministries. Again, that's ftfm.org. Until next time, when we gather together around the Word of God, be blessed. And remember, 
We serve an awesome God. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.